Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're tuned to the Steve Donahue Show on CPL Radio, your one-stop daily source for Steve's take on the world of books. And now your host, the book critic who literally reads everything, Steve Donahue. Greetings, fellow patrons of the Cedarburg Public Library, and welcome back to the Steve Donahue Show, where we talk about bookish views, news, and reviews with all the fur of a thousand whirling dervishes. <laughs> and just, just this morning, as I was entering the studio, my producer scurried up to me and said, might I have a word? And I said, if you must. And he said, seems to me that, that the, the tone you struck on yesterday's episode got a little bit on the funereal side. What with you talking about never going back to Cape Cod and all, it seems a little bit somber as a note to strike on a, on a internet radio program, doesn't it? And I looked him full in the face for as long as I could stand it, and then I said, be gone from my sight, you foul toad. And uh, he scurried back off to his glass-walled booth. And I was thinking about it and uh, realized that Although I would never admit it to him, he's probably right. <laughs> but that, that note in our Cape Cod visit wasn't at all meant to be funereal. It was merely meant to express the, the realities on the ground. Travel is more problematic. The Cape isn't quite the inviting place that it once was. And as I mentioned in that episode, it kind of helps to know somebody who has a digs on the Cape. And I only know a handful of people right now who have such digs. And that the logistics rule out visits from time to time there. I wasn't meaning to say that I wasn't long for this earth <laughs> at all. I was merely, merely meaning to strike a realistic note. But nevertheless, in his own groping, grudging way, he was probably correct that that was probably a bit of a downer of a note. So I thought that, plus the fact that we haven't actually talked about new books in a while, probably means that I owe you a little cheerful bookish conversation. Uh, so that's what we'll do today in this episode of the Steve Donahue Show, because, uh, as I mentioned, the, the bookpocalypse is coming. Publishers can only wait so long. 
with postponed titles that were put off because of the first flush of the first wave of the pandemic before they have to release those titles or eat them. Uh, we are in the presaging days of that deluge. They, that deluge has not arrived yet, but there are still plenty of books on the market, plenty in your bookstores and on your electronic devices where a large number of people in the last how long has it been? <laughs> you tell me, since March. All these months, virtually all of 2020, a large number of people have been prompted by external circumstances to explore that ebook reader that they had in a drawer in the kitchen somewhere, their Kindle Paperwhite or their iPad. Explore it and see if they actually could make themselves accustomed to reading ebooks. That has worked, and a lot of those people are seeing, because of that, more and more advertisements and algorithms for new releases. So I thought that is what we would look at today, since in one way or another, whether you are foolhardy enough to be browsing regularly for any length of leisurely time in your bookstore, or whether, is I think, more likely you're spending more and more time on your electronic device of choice, whatever it is. I know people who read on their cell phones exclusively and love it. I know people who need the big real estate of an iPad. And I know people who have their Kindles, have had their Kindles or their Kobos or their Barnes & Noble Nooks for years and love them, swear by them. And when you have devices like that, those electronic bookstores will very often show you far more new books and a far greater plenitude of them than you would actually spot in your brick-and-mortar bookstore. So some of these titles that we're going to talk about may have crossed your radar. And uh, I read... A lot. <laughs> I know. I know this is a common refrain on the Steve Donahue show, but it's it's the hope the, in the business of internet radio that every episode is somebody's first. So I feel it, it behooves me to, to underscore that I read a lot. I am not like the rest of you. I do not have a normal, responsible adult existence. I don't have any children that I'm willing to acknowledge in any legal binding kind of way. I don't have a normal job where I put on pants and a tie. I don't have civic obligations. I don't have an office to report to. I don't go to classes or teach or anything like that. Literally, all I do is read. So I am out there as an advance guard ahead of the rest of you looking at a lot of these things. So if some of these books were of interest to you and you're wondering if maybe someone could weigh in on them, maybe someone whose voice you are coming to trust, or not, <laughs> I thought I would weigh in on a handful of books uh, just to give today a cheerier aspect than yesterday. Uh, the first of those books is a historical novel. It's uh, The Pull of the Stars by Emma Donahue, who some of you will know as the author of a terrific novel called Slammerkin, and a, of course the famous and, and uh, cinematically adapted novel Room. Uh, and uh, The Pull of the Stars stars Julia Power, who is a nurse in... Uh, uh, Dublin maternity ward in the wake, in the immediate full flush of the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918, uh, which the President of the United States likes to refer to totally unchallenged by anyone around him as the Spanish flu epidemic of 1917 that was not in fact a Spanish flu epidemic in 1917. But there was one in 1918, and it was epic. Just epic in its in the swaths of destruction that it left behind. Uh, it's a little bit odd that the President of the United States would get that date wrong since his own grandfather died in the, in the, uh, um, in the correct year. But, but one way or another, uh, Emma Donahue, of course, is not being opportunistic enough to craft this book with 
the COVID pandemic in mind. This is a, a painstaking and very atmospheric historical novel that was probably in the works for a long time. It's, it's, uh, it's not to be held against her that this happens to be extremely opportune because this whole novel, the, the uh, adventures that Julia Power has, the advance, the, the development of her personal life, all take place in the shadow of an almost unprecedented worldwide epidemic. Uh, and the pull of the stars is actually very, very good. I won't need to stress that for any of this author's many fans. They have come to trust her over the years and know that no matter what she writes about, they're going to enjoy it. If you're not one of those fans, well, <laughs> then the pull of the stars is a perfect place for you to correct that. Uh, it's not nearly as universally, bleakly depressing as room. And it doesn't require you to make any uh, any real adjustments to fantasy elements like Slammerkin does. Uh, instead, it's just a meat and potatoes, no pun intended, historical novel of uh, Long Gone Dublin. And uh, I think you will really enjoy it. Uh, then the next one uh, is nonfiction, for those of you who are nonfiction fans, much like myself. And it is Katie Mack's book, The End of Everything. And the title of her book then adds a parenthesis, astrophysically speaking, of course. Because, again, unbeknownst to the author when she was working on this book, it appears in bookstores in the middle of not one, not two, but estimates range anywhere from four to six worldwide catastrophes. Uh, uh, 2020 is the first year in quite some time in the modern era that looks on the surface a touch on the unsurvivable side <laughs> uh, for many different reasons. And the reason that that subtitle is is a little puckish is because this book is not about any of those catastrophes. This is about the catastrophe that looks at all of those and laughs. This is about the end of all catastrophes. This is about the end of the universe. What, astrophysically speaking, what can we estimate the end of the universe might be like? Katie Mack gives you a broad overview in her book about what astrophysicists largely agree is, was the beginning of this universe. Largely, they agree that it was a kind of explosive wave function in which all of the matter and energy and uh, cosmic forces that we understand as basic to our universe were abruptly instituted. They were abruptly born in an event that is colloquially known as the Big Bang. And in the wake of all of the, all of the research that's been done on the cosmic background radiation and, and the nature of the Big Bang, astrophysicists have naturally started pondering, well, if that was theoretically how this universe began, how might it end? Will it be a big crunch? For instance, is there is there an elastic property to that expansion that will eventually contract? Is, is there some transcendence that might be coming at the end of that thing? Of course, nothing even remotely human will be there to see it. <laughs> no, nothing will be. Because by the time the universe ends, most of, if not all of, the stars that are that give the heat and light necessary for life will be long gone. The book is, uh, again, this was not intentional on the author's part, but it serves as a remarkable counterbalance to any kind of doom and gloom that you may be feeling about the day's headlines. <laughs> and you might think that that is counterintuitive. You might think, well, if I'm feeling doomy and gloomy about reading the day's headlines, surely reading a book about a cataclysm that's a million times worse than anything I read about will be a million times worse to read. But now, if you're anything like me, it's oddly cheering. <laughs> it's oddly cheering to read that and know, well, okay, we do have bigger problems. We're just not going to be around to see them. It's uh, in terms of of uh, popular science, it's a hoot. Just delightful. Because I didn't just feel that I owed you book reviews. 
I also felt that I owed you some positive book reviews. The last time we talked about books, they were all negative. New releases, that is. All the Cape Cod books and authors that I mentioned are aces. But before that, the book, the book world is largely full of gigantic pieces of poop when it comes to new books. So I thought I owed you some positive recommendations as well. And the end of everything, astrophysically speaking, is terrific. If you are interested in popular science or you know somebody who is, you should you should definitely pay it attention. Uh, the next one is also nonfiction. It's of a little bit uh, grimmer and more ripped from the headlines nature. It's called Show Them Your Good by Jeff Hobbs, in which he studies uh, four young men in Los Angeles who are just about at college age. And all four of them, they're very different. They come from very different socioeconomic backgrounds, very different family backgrounds. They have very different aspirations. And all four of them are approaching the prospect of college, some kind of college, some kind of accommodation with that new future in very different ways. And Hobbes does them the remarkable compliment. And you, the reader, pays the remarkable compliment of not condescending. I don't know if you've noticed this in popular nonfiction and especially in popular fiction, but popular nonfiction that deals with young men at exactly this age, right on the edge of deciding a lot of the aspects of their young adulthood, can be so condescending, so amazingly condescending. There has been a, a mainstream media narrative that has been fed into the culture for the last 10 years that young men of that age are basically non-sentient predatory animals. And, of course, when Hobbes or anybody else, you, for instance, hunker down in their rooms, get them to turn off their music and talk to you about their lives and their dreams and their fears, they come across as intensely human and very disarmingly vulnerable. And Hobbes captures all of that in this book. It's amazing. It will make you think, and not just about these four boys, although he does a novelist's job of bringing them to life, but about the young men in your life. It will make you think about them It'll pause in your thinking about them in a way that maybe you've needed to have done. Maybe that hasn't happened in a while. It's terrific and eye-opening. Uh, then we'll move on from uh, a serious, somber work of nonfiction to a decidedly non-serious work of fiction. And not just any fiction, but genre fiction. And not just any genre, but science fiction. And not just any kind of science fiction, but Star Wars fiction. <laughs> <laughs> so so the the uh, likely interested niche audience has just shrunk to basically me and my wretched producer, but I'm not even willing to glance in his direction. Hey, I think he heard me say the word Star Wars. Now you should see his nose is plastered against the inside of his glass wall. It's ridiculous. It's so pathetic. He probably wants to immediately cosplay up and go to a convention. But one way or another, I'm talking about worthwhile Star, Star Wars fiction. And it's by Timothy Zahn, who will be known, his name will be known to some of you because he has written some of the only Star Wars novels that are actually readable. They're actually good science fiction. And in the, his signature trilogy of those Star Wars novels from decades ago, he invented a character called Admiral Thrawn, who looks like a human but he has bright blue skin, and who works for the Empire. He is one of the bad guys. And in his initial appearance in a novel decades ago by Timothy Zahn, we have an amazing moment where Thrawn is basically in frustration, wondering how much more successful the Galactic Empire would have been if the Emperor had put more trust and given more responsibility to career military geniuses like Thrawn himself instead of unpredictable X-factors like Darth Vader, whatever Darth Vader was. He wasn't a general. He wasn't in the normal chain of command. And 
it's possible to make the argument, if you're Admiral Thrawn or someone Thrawn inclined, that it was largely through Vader that the Empire fell. In that first novel decades ago, Thrawn wonders that, and in the course of that novel, he demonstrates an unbelievable amount of tactical and strategic brilliance, of a type that Darth Vader very conspicuously does not demonstrate in the movies, and becomes a figure by the end of that, uh, he appears in a trilogy originally, becomes a figure that readers liked very much, even though he was technically one of the bad guys. Uh, and Timothy Zahn has gone back to this character a couple of times, and he is back to him again in a new trilogy that, uh, in a very annoying 21st century way, has five or six different titles for you to choose from. I'm going I'm to see if I can get my way all the way through it just once. It's called Thrawn Ascendancy, colon, Chaos Rising, colon, Star Wars, colon, The Ascendancy Trilogy, number one. I have no idea which of those things is this book's actual title. I hate to break it to Timothy Zahn or his idiotic publishers, but a book can only have one title. I'm assuming that the title here is Chaos Rising, which is very sad because that's intensely cliche. But the book, I'm not 100% sure the book is out yet. I think it comes out in September, so you won't see this in your bookstores, but you will see it on your electronic bookstores, and you can just make a note. You can bookmark it or, or pre-order it or whatever. If, you're, if you know the Zahn, the Zahn books about Admiral Thrawn, you will probably want to pre-order it. Uh, but this book is actually extremely good. And when, when you have Timothy Zahn writing about what is turning out to be his signature character, whether it's in somebody else's universe or not, you're going to get really good science fiction. The fact that it's embedded in the inherited world of Star Wars won't slow you down that much. There's a whole lot of fan service in... Uh, Thrawn Ascendancy, colon, Chaos Rising, colon, Star Wars, colon, the Ascendancy Trilogy, colon, number one. Uh, there's a whole lot of fan service in there, a whole lot of stuff that Star Wars fans will go giddy about. Uh, the mere mention of this is making my producer in his booth jump up and down. I, we had better get off this book soon, or he's not going to be worth any kind of work for the rest of the day. Uh, there, I'll, I'll finish up before we move on by saying there is fan service in this book, but a great deal of the superstructure of it is dependent on stuff that you will know just from the movies. And the assumption here, I think, is a good one, and an amazing one, which is that no matter who you are, and no matter what you like to read, you will be familiar with those movies. That's kind of amazing. I think that's largely true, probably to a larger extent than a lot of us would like to admit. Um, and if that is true of you, this novel will work. It actually has what so many Star Wars novels lack, which is good three-dimensional character building and something actually at stake that is not explaining a footnote in one piece of dialogue in one movie from 30 years ago. Uh, there's actually drama at stake in... Uh, Thrawn Ascendancy, Cola, Star, Chaos Rising, Cola, Star Wars, colon, The Ascendancy Trilogy, number one. Uh, so I, it is a recommend when it finally gets to you. Uh, the next one is The 99% Invisible City by Roman Mars and Kurt Kohlstedt. And this book takes as its initial observation that uh, most humans live in cities now. And that that number has been steadily going up and is likely to continue steadily going up. Most people live in cities or in the direct orbit of cities. And yet, as our authors point out, and I can attest that this is true, most people who live in cities don't see them. They don't look at what's around them. Or they see it, but they don't question what it is. And these authors dig into that superstructure. They dig into the, the world beyond the skyscraper in amazing ways. Just amazing ways. And once again, as with the universal assumption in Star Wars, so too the universal assumption here, which is that if you want this book, you will almost certainly live in a city. So it will apply to you. These two dig into the, what, the, the hidden architecture, the hidden levers and pulleys, the hidden meaning, even the hidden language 
of all cities with with lots of local examples, lots of specific examples, but all of it is mappable onto a general picture that is just fascinating, just absolutely fascinating. Speaking of someone who's lived in cities for a great number, a great number of cities for a great number of years, I just couldn't stop reading. Uh, then the next one is a paperback release. We'll finish up with a paperback release. It's a slim little thing. You might have missed it, especially since paperback releases are backlogged in a lot of American retail bookstores. They're, they're not given as much space on the sales floor, and a lot of the stores are just mercilessly backlogged in unpacking and displaying things. So I wanted to bring this to your attention. Uh, it's the English language translation of uh, The Order of the Day by an author named Eric Vuillard, V-U-I-L-L-A-R-D, translated into English by Mark Polizotti. And it is, it's, it's a slim little book, but boy, will it stick with you. It's, it's history. Uh, but it's it's 100 pages long. And it starts out with, there are two main events in German history, little events in German history, that it concentrates on and, until the author weirdly and convincingly extrapolates a whole bunch of stuff from them. But it starts out with a meeting in 1933 between a bunch of industrialists and businessmen and the members of the fledgling Nazi party. The purpose of the meeting being to pump money into the fledgling Nazi party. And the underlying commentary in in Villard's writing about the meeting being that no one at that meeting really knew what was going to come from such a such an alliance. And the book all, uh, splits his attention also with another historical event. And this is with the Nazis fully entrenched in power. The year is 1938. And they are considering, they are planning uh, the annexation of Austria, the Anschluss, which was both a perfect example of ruthless blitzkrieg warfare because of course Austria didn't want to be annexed and also a perfect example of Nazi style blitzkrieg public relations because very often even in textbooks today the Anschluss will be referred to as a reunification of Germany and Austria when it wasn't anything of the kind it was a conquest and that original characterization of the Anschluss came from the Nazis in 1938 and you might think at the beginning of the order of the day that, that these two events are only very tangentially connected, but the author does a fantastic job of meditating on them and all of the factors involved, the levers and the might-have-beens. For a short book on history, for a short meditation, it is incredibly gripping. And like I said, it will stick with you. Uh, and there you go. <laughs> Those, that's just uh, half a dozen uh, recommendations of books that are either out now or coming out soon. Uh, to sort of correct the tone imbalance here on the Steve Donahue show. I'm going to wrap up this episode for now. I have to go and check on my producer because I, I was really a, a tactical misstep on my part to mention Star Wars quite so often in his hearing. <laughs> I have to go and check on him and make sure that he recomposes himself. Uh, so I'm going to wrap up this episode of the Steve Donahue show for now and wish you all happy reading and I will talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you for your attention. The Steve Donahue Show is a production of CPL Radio, a service of the Cedarburg Public Library located in Cedarburg, Wisconsin.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 